everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. I'm also your host. You can find out more about our transparency and accountability work at chicagojustice.org. We just dropped a report today on grading the justice agencies in their response to the Freedom of Information Act. This goes from the 911 Center in Chicago, Chicago Police, Prosecutors, Sheriff, Police Board, uh, COPA, Citizen House of Police Accountability, Illinois Department of Corrections, and the State Police. Really fascinating report. Please go check it out. Go to our home screen. You can, on the left, big there, you'll have no problem finding it. Okay, today we speak, we have an interview with Jennifer Volan-Katz, who's the Executive Director of the John Howard Association. And with time remaining, we're going to talk about our recurring segment of Social Media Fails this time. It's CWB Chicago. They're on there regularly. Then if we have time left after that, we're going to talk about Lopez, Alderman, Alderperson Lopez on Timid Cops and the Tribune Editorial Board on the COP contract, the FOP contract. We'll see how much of that we get to. Um, just as a couple quick reminders, if you got comments or... Um, comments or questions, drop them in the chat, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Twitter. Um, I get them live to my screen and I will try to include them in the show. The interview was taped with Jennifer. It was taped earlier today because of the technology. We can't do them live. So, but we're going to break it up into two pieces, but I'm happy to answer questions after the second one airs. Um, this coming next week, we have CJP's first day of action. You can get more information about it. It's going to TweetStorm on about accountability and transparency in the justice system on August 12th. Go get more information at any of the bios on our social media platforms you're watching this. And also at cjpnation.org or drop your email in the chat and we'll get you information or hit us up at info at chicagojustice.org and we will get you information that way also. But please join up. Um, help us advocate for transparency and accountability in the justice system. Really appreciate it. All right, just a little scheduling. This is our last show, last live show, um, probably till about the 16th. And then uh, I'm on vacation. We got a break and then I'm in Chicago. I'm living in D.C., but I'll be in Chicago the uh, midweek on the 16th, the week of the 16th for a week. So we're going to be a little sketchy till I get back from Chicago about live shows, but we're going to be replaying some of our more popular shows in the meantime on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30. But please get involved with the Day of Action. We really, really appreciate it. We really want to make a difference in transparency and accountability system. As I said earlier, go to our website and you can get information on grading the state and city governments. All the justice agencies, or a bunch of them, we sent basically the same request each agency, and we're going to grade their responses. And if you, you're not going to be shocked by this, but the CPD failed the um, the test, and you won't believe the um, the document we asked for from each agency is required to be kept in the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. It requires that each agency keep a list of the records and types of records they create and how they can be accessed. And would you believe it or not, the Chicago Police Department found it in their good graces to tell us producing that document would be overly burdensome. <laughs> Probably the worst request out of the seven or eight agencies we looked at. It's really pretty amazing. So we're going to get to our interview now with Jennifer. It's really a pretty amazing interview in that it really goes kind of in depth at times into this just lack of accountability and a, a lack of oversight and lack of public interest into what is going on in our correctional facilities, prisons, jails. Specifically, her agency, the John Howard Association, looks at prisons, but you can talk about each level and it's just amazing. So part one of this interview we're going to play right now is about almost 10 minutes. After that, I'm going to come back and talk about it a little, then we'll play part two. Okay, so I will see you on the other side of this. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Today, our guest is Jennifer Volan-Katz from the John Howard Association. She's the executive director there. We're going to talk to her a little bit about 
Accountability in the Illinois Department of Corrections, how blind spots exist, blind spots where cameras are not showing what happens. How do those exist? And is there any accountability in the Illinois Department of Corrections throughout the leadership and at these facilities for these things existing and existing for periods, long periods of time? Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay, so for my um, my ordinance, uh, my audience that doesn't exactly know and pay attention to prison oversight, what exactly is the John Howard Association? What are they doing? Sure, yeah, and the, the name doesn't do a whole lot to shed light on what it is <laughs> we do. Uh, the John Howard Association has actually been around for 120 years in Illinois, founded in 1901. We are the only independent citizen correctional oversight organization in Illinois, um, which is a long way of saying we're prison monitors or watchdogs. We go into the prisons to monitor for conditions of confinement. Uh, we observe the, the prison uh, ourselves. We talk to the people who are incarcerated. We talk to staff and administrators. We collect information and data. And we use all of that information to draft and publish reports um, about the state of the facilities and to identify policy issues and areas in need of being addressed. Okay. so. Um, as we were talking before the show, you, um, you've been with John Howard Association several years. So what got you first into doing this type of work? And then how did you end up deciding to apply to become the executive director? Sure. So my interest in criminal justice and prison reform really dates back to my time in college. It started with a wonderful professor, uh, a sociology professor who happened to teach a whole set of classes on criminology and social deviance and deviant behavior. And I just took every class that he offered because he was a fantastic teacher. Uh, and he asked me to do an internship in a local prison. This was in upstate New York. It was a me uh, medium security male uh, state prison in New York. And it was incredibly eye-opening. And I'm of the um, category of people that walks into a prison for the first time, having had absolutely no experience or exposure to the criminal justice system before that, uh, and walks out with a sense of there but for the grace of God go I. Um, and, you know, looking back, they gave me access to information that under current confidentiality laws would probably have not been made available to a college intern. Um, but it told me a lot about the people who were in prison. And I saw the racial disparities and I saw the different, you know, the mental health issues. And, you know, from a mile away, even to a relatively untrained eye, the difference in background between me and most of the people that were in prison was so clear in terms of opportunity, in terms of privilege. Um, and that that really became kind of my North Star in everything I did subsequently, professionally and academically. Um, so I was involved in criminal justice reform policy before going to law school. Uh, I always knew that it was criminal justice that I was interested in during my time at law school. Um, I did direct representation as a staff attorney with the Federal Defender Program in Chicago. And it was from there that I really had a sense of fighting, it was fighting the good fight and an important fight, um, but to fight for one person in this scheme of this really broken framework and system, um, you know, sometimes felt really overwhelming, right? And like you're banging your head against the wall. And so at that point, um, and because I had a young growing family, I sort of shifted to policy work to look at systems. Um, and I just luckily happened across the John Howard Association. We're a small organization. Um, and I, I think it was a lot of luck and a lot of good timing that I met the organization when they were in need of someone to take over their juvenile justice monitoring work. It, I have to ask you this question because I've got my I got a master's in criminology, law and justice at the University of Illinois Chicago, and we just we debated a lot about whether or not it was appropriate to have classes undergrad classes take tours of prison facilities or jails, and I was of the opinion, and you're free obviously free to disagree. I was of the opinion that if it was led by a professor and you were going in with a critical eye, that that kind of public accessibility to these facilities so they could see what was going on was helpful. Others took it um, as if you were going, they were worried that people were going to, this, this is horrible, but like you were just going to the zoo. 
And yeah. I, I, I had problems when it was an ex-cop or a prison official totally giving the tour and they're te also teaching the class. So there's no, going to be no critical um, perspective on the incarceration system. So I would just like you, you've been in this business a long time, how you, how you would feel about what I've brought to you here. Yeah, well, it's something we consider a lot at the John Howard Association, because part of our mission is to expose, you know, every citizen to prisons, to the reality of prisons. And the best way to understand prisons is to go inside and see for yourself. And we think an aware citizenry, you know, an educated citizenry is one that can make better decisions um, around their, our criminal justice system, because it is, after all, our tax dollars that fund it. Um, but but you point to some really important considerations, which are kind of intent uh, and structure of the visit. Um, first off, I will say that my first experience was in an intern as an intern. Um, it wasn't a tour, and I think in many ways the benefit there was I was thrown into the deep end, and I showed up week after week after week. And you know, I wasn't an observer; I was kind of put to work. Um, and certainly, that in some ways informs how I lead the John Howard Association in terms of uh, how we incorporate volunteer citizen monitors into our work. We do include citizen um, volunteers, but we certainly had experiences that um, fell closer to your description of people kind of coming in for the wrong reasons, you know, coming in out of personal curiosity and, you know, sort of looking for an experience that was something they could share at a cocktail party is kind of how we used to frame it. Um, and that, that was not the goal of these visits. We want people that came because they truly wanted to understand the system, that they, they hadn't had exposure to it, they thought that it was important, and were willing to go in um, with an open mind and to collect information dispassionately. I mean, one of the things that's important to our work is that we be objective observers. Um, we certainly are policy advocates. I don't pretend that we remain neutral on issues, but when we're inside monitoring, our job, our goal is to collect as much information as we can, as many perspectives as we can, and that means talking to everyone. And it also means training volunteers so that they understand our concern is not why someone is in prison. It's not how long they're in prison. You know, it's what are they experiencing in prison? You know, we're there to look at the conditions inside their cell. We're there to find out about the kind of programs that are available to them, the kind of treatment, what kind of health care are they getting? Um, and, and nothing about why they're in prison is meaningful to that work. Um, and that is often a, a challenge. Um, with taking people in on, on prison visits and tours is, is helping to separate those issues for people um, to make sure that when they come on the visit, they're there for sort of the right reasons uh, to collect information. You know, they're not there to judge, they're there to monitor. Yeah, it's, um, I've taken a tour of Rikers Island that was with a uh, commissioner there. We were piggybacking, I was able to piggyback on the New York Department of Corrections intern tour. And then I've taken a tour of, well, I've been in Dwight to do a radio interview for a show I used to do years and years ago. And then I was in Cook County Jail, Dart's office, uh, in the midst of a FOIA kerfuffle, decided one of the reasons, one of the ways they were going to pay me back was to give me a tour of Cook County Jail. And one of the things I realized is almost <laughs> instantly at all three facilities, in my opinion, how epically this system fails. Like I, in Rikers, the first place they put us was administrative segregation for women, protective custody. And I was like, and they're like telling us how this is the good part of the prison. This is the best part of the prison. And I was just like, oh, I would not last. What, what, what it's got to do to people to yeah. be able to survive in those conditions. I, you know, every prison I've ever been in when I leave, I, I have that overwhelming sense. You yeah, know, yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't survive. I think it's amazing uh, how, how people adapt and find coping me mechanisms in these incredibly, you know, isolating, difficult, horrible environments. Yeah, how that's supposed to make anyone better, I don't know. Right. Okay. Hello. So we are back. So fascinating interview. Like I said, I've taken a tour of now, well, I've taken tours of two jails, New York's and Chicago's, Cook County. Rikers Island. I was in Dwight. We'll get a little more into that in the second part of the interview. It really is. You go in and you're like, all right, I know 
<laughs> there is no way people are getting better by being in here. Um, that is for sure. It's a um, it's an incredible experience. I'm also still on like I I I am a fan of what John Howard does. I'm a fan that they train people, that they have people going in, being observers, talking to everyone. I think that's great work. I'm still kind of open on the discussion. I, I guess I could be swayed either way of these tours of college students. Like when I taught in the criminal justice field, criminal social justice field, and I know friends of mine on my master's program are big, are really hip on having kids go in and... Like, I think if you prepare them right to be have, look at a critical eye and understand what's actually going on there, it can be helpful. Um, but it can be abused and you can make it look like you're, like it's, it's a, some sort of zoo where these, um, the inmates are there for us to um, objective, objectivize, just um, like you're looking at a zoo animal. And I, I obviously I think that's atrocious. So... I'm still kind of open on that issue. I think it can be useful if it's done right in, as an educational way. I think more citizens should go in so they understand what's actually going on there and whether or not they approve of it and whether or not they think more funding should be allocated to it. Uh, because obviously, it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to fund. People don't want to fund. They want to spend money on building prisons and capacity so you can put as many people as possible. They don't really care what happens once you get them in. They just want them in there as long as ever. Alderperson Lopez, Alderperson Spazzato, Alderperson Napolitano. I mean, we can go on and on with the politicians. Paul Vallis, Bob Fioretti, um, Crime and Wrigleyville blog, which we'll talk about next or after uh, part two of the interview. You just go on and on with those people. They don't care what happens inside. Just put them in. Um, and that's not the wisest strategy because it doesn't work. It'd be nice if it did, but it just doesn't. Okay. We're going to get to part two. This runs about 25 minutes. Um, but it's really interesting because you get more in depth about the Illinois Department of Corrections, these blind spots they have in the prisons, um, and accountability and transparency around the Illinois Department of Corrections. Okay, I'll see you on the other side. We're going to turn to the topic at hand, which is these issues of blind spots in the Illinois Department of Corrections facilities, in their prisons. It comes to this topic came to my attention because of the beating death of Larry Irvin at Western Illinois Correctional Center in Mount Sterling. I believe that the beating death happened in 2018, but this CBS2 just reported on this again. One officer has pled guilty to, I believe, his murder, and there's two others that are awaiting trial. Um, as, as horrible as that situation, I don't want to really delve into that specifically. I'm more interested in how in the world is there a blind spot in a prison where they don't have cameras? And if you have any idea specifically, how long has that blind spot or other blind spots existed in these prisons and no one's done anything about them? Um, so those are all really good questions. Uh, <laughs> and let me say at the John Howard Association, you know, we don't do individual representation, mm -hmm. we don't litigate. Um, so we're not involved in that specific case. We have been uh, contacted by the media ab about the Larry Irvin case and, and what we have raised as concerns uh, are really transparency and oversight. And I think that really gets to the heart of the question you're asking. Uh, how do blind spots exist? Why, why don't we know about that? Why isn't more being done? You know, how can that go on? And I think the, the easiest answer is lack of transparency and, and lack of oversight. I mean, the reality is, is we are the only group that is going into the prisons to monitor for conditions of confinement and, and looking at the facilities. And while we're very good at what we do and we are deeply committed to this work, we're a small office, we are independent, we, we have no authority. Um, so they're, they're, what we do is important, but we are basically emptying the ocean one bucket at a time. So you know, there has not been a real emphasis in Illinois. And I should say that throughout our, the United States, frankly, uh, prison oversight is just not a concept that is widely embraced or practiced. You know, when you look at other countries where there are ombudsmen and inspectorates and layers of oversight, I'm not saying it's perfect, 
but it is a much deeper commitment to knowing what's going on inside prisons than you see anywhere in the United States. And certainly there are places doing you know, more robust uh, oversight of their prisons than Illinois, um, but you know, we, we have a huge gap there in general. So I, I wanna sort of be clear that this is not a one-off problem. This is not something that exists in one prison. Blind spots are not the only issue, right? This is part of a larger whole where we don't know enough about what goes on inside, what goes on inside our prisons. So you know, in May of 2020, the George Floyd case re reopened the issue of oversight of, of cops in, in a way that, you know, we're familiar with, frankly, in Chicago because of the litigation that's been ongoing for years, but was new, I think, in other jurisdictions and to other communities. And how is it that that, you know, got the kind of national attention that it did, that it raised, you know, general consciousness the way it did? Cell phones. It was the opportunity for an average citizen standing by to videotape and share, right? Between cell phones and social media, you know, ability to share information has changed dramatically. Well, there is one part of our society where that possibility doesn't begin to exist and that's inside our prisons. So, you know, if you start to think fundamentally about what that means in terms of access to information uh, for the ability of people who are in prison to have their concerns, heard and addressed and for people to really see and know what's going on inside our prisons, you know, you begin to see uh, just incredible how incredibly cut off prisons are and how low they rank, you know, on the totem pole of things the general person is thinking about if they don't have a vested interest, if they don't have a loved one in prison. Yeah, I would say it's pretty close to zero. As sad as that is, um, people don't seem to care. You know, Vera, I'm sure you know about it, but I was an intern at Vera like 15 years ago, and they did a report about corrections. And the, one of the things that I found most interesting was the main stat of the report, it was out of a variety of things, including sexual assault in prison, was that 96% of people who go in are coming out. Right. And people are just sort of starting to understand that. I mean, and think about it so often, you know, when you look at periods of rapid prison growth, building prisons in the United States, and certainly this is true in Illinois, it was during sort of tough on crime eras. And, you know, so it, it sort of coincided with two things, politicians understanding that being tough on crime and building prisons was politically beneficial. Oh, and it also created jobs. So we put people to work building these prisons and staffing these prisons. And frequently they were taking the place of industries that were no longer, you know, of financial benefit to the area, which was often rural areas. And so we have prisons, you know, in out of the way places where we can't see them, where we can't cure people. And frequently people are sent to prisons far from their homes where it's difficult for loved ones to get there. So every step along of the, along the way intentionally, and then sometimes unintentionally, We've created a situation, you know, where we took what was already a closed system uh, and guarded it, frankly, um, e even more closely, giving it more opportunity to do what it will on its own without outside intervention or oversight um, than, you know, you see pretty much anywhere else or in any other kind of industry or government-run agency. Yeah, my first class that I taught at UIC uh, a, a student came up to me and said, Professor, you got to really help us. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And they're like, well, they're talking, this is like 2007 or eight, maybe a little later. They're talking about closing our prison. And we need to keep it open. And I am just like, I'm sorry, that is not something I can help with. I understand the economic issues that's going to have on your town. I get it but I cannot possibly advocate for them keeping a prison just to so to keep you employed. Yeah. Sorry, I just can't do that. Um, so let's talk about um, IDOC a little bit. One of the problems, like I've done police accountability work since the mid nineties. And one of my problems is we always, the, the, the rare time that we, we get some justice, it's the low level people that we get. It's never the officials. Right. Once you get above a certain rank, it's like the end. And is, is this is that kind of lack of systemic accountability and consequences for things? Is that common in the Illinois Department of Corrections in their history? 
So I, I think there's a couple different pieces kind of embedded in that question. Um, the first thing you have to think about in Illinois in particular is the strength of the unions. So you can't really look at who gets pinned for what or who doesn't or who's disciplined or where there's accountability for professional behavior in the Illinois Department of Corrections without recognizing that the union has an incredibly strong collective bargaining agreement uh, with the agency. And, um, and also it's important to remember that upper level management leaves the union to be upper level management. And so there is this sort of upside down incentive system you know, where you may not actually be uh, giving the best and brightest reason to be upper level management because you're giving up job security. Um, sometimes it means that you're not, you're not the highest paid person at the facility. Um, and so we, you know, th there are a lot of issues sort of tied into how we've incentivized people who work in corrections. The second piece of that is there's almost no transparency around staff discipline and behavior. And I think that's a critically important issue for people to focus on and understand. You know, we don't know. So many of those processes are internal and so many of them are dictated by the collective bargaining agreement and there is no public reporting requirement. So we don't know how staff are being disciplined. We don't know how they're behaving. Um, and we frequently anecdotally hear stories you know, about guards that, that beat people or that, you know, that have been, you know, names that come up over and over and over again for bad behavior who were never held accountable. And, you know, the, the answer to that is there should be more publicly available information. Um, when you work for the state of Illinois, you know, it, it, there's just no reason that your professional behavior, you know, shouldn't be something that is available for scrutiny by the public. You know, we want people that are doing jobs for the right reason, that are comporting with the responsibilities and respecting the rights of the people they serve. And we don't have any of that when it comes to corrections. So, you know, one, one piece of looking at the conduct is understanding the complete lack of transparency we have in being able to identify bad actors, let alone, you know, weigh in on what happens to the people that have been identified and proven to be bad actors. Um, so that's, that's, I think, a re one really big piece of, of the question, you know, you posed about the behavior of the people that work inside the prisons. Um, I would say that right now, the director of the Department of Corrections, Rob Jeffries, came after the Irvin case. He started in Illinois, I think, in the summer of 2019, and he came from out of state. And in some ways, that's had benefits, I think. I, you know, I think he looks at the Illinois Department of Corrections with a more critical eye. I think he has worked in systems that were more functional and more data-driven, and I think he brings that to Illinois. Um, you know, in my experience, no correctional leader is all that eager in embracing or creating oversight of the agency they run. Um, I will give the director credit for doing two things, and I've talked to the people running these these offices or in these positions, so I know that they are truly happening. We'll see what results from it. But under his leadership, they created a chief inspection officer. Uh, she has started with the agency and been to all the facilities. Her first task is to create a functional grievance system, which is something really missing in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And under her leadership, there is now two employees of the Department of Corrections focused on constituent services and getting information to families and loved ones, which is a step in the right direction. Now, that is hardly enough transparency. That doesn't create more data reporting that should be easily available to the public. It doesn't put more eyes and ears inside the prisons, uh, but those are steps certainly in the right direction. So in the, if I remember the Irvin case, the response of the Department of Corrections, or at least the facility in Mount Sterling was to add some, I think 19, if I got the number right, some number of cameras to try to get rid of. Might've been even more than that. Okay. So yeah. they added cameras to get rid of the dead spots. And one of the other things that caught me in the CBS2 report uh, was you commenting about how you approached or the John Howard Association approached IDOC and tried to get, especially during COVID, access to remote screenings of random videos from the facilities. And of course, the Department of Corrections shot you down. 
I'm wondering if you can tell us, I mean, did they give you reasons why they shot you down or was it just like a firm, like, no way? Well, so first of all, um, you know, one of the things I said about the, the cameras, the increase in cameras that I've said publicly several times is, you know, that's an important first step. There should be cameras everywhere. But what we know from being inside the prisons is it's easy to identify the cameras and it's easy to find blind spots. If you know where the cameras are, you know where they're not. Um, and that tends to be, you know, where bad behavior occurs, right, is off camera. Um, so you know, cameras in and of themselves don't solve the problem. You have to have people monitoring the cameras and the footage and they have to be willing to act on what they see. And, and there has to be, you know, um, incentives to whistleblow and, and, you know, a culture that accepts that. So that if you are someone who's monitoring the video in real time, you know, you, you are responsible for responding appropriately in order to create a safer environment. And, and I don't think those things are on the table. Uh, when it comes to the request we made, so I don't think it would surprise anyone that an outside group asking for security footage inside a prison would be turned down by leadership. Um, the request we made was grounded in the fact that during the pandemic, we could not be inside the prisons. And because of that, we were looking at international oversight bodies to see what kind of techniques they were using to conduct remote monitoring. And one of the things that surfaced was you could request, you know, random date and time uh, footage, security footage, just to get a sense of what's going on in the facility. And so we approached the department with that request as one way of having um, a sight line into the prisons during the pandemic when we couldn't be there in person. Um, and I would not be genuine if I said I was surprised that that <laughs> request was denied. Um, it was certainly one we I would love to have had um, filled. Um, but you know, based on similar requests from media, from you know, from from all sorts of different groups over the years, it was not surprising that they said no. Um, you know, we hope that because of the pandemic and the circumstances presented, we might have a more open ear to the request than we did. Um, but we didn't. Yeah, I, I've only um, dealt with IDOC in minimal, minimally over the years. I, when I went into Dwight, it was actually to do an interview for my radio show. And it took me forever to get it approved through the, the chain of command. And then I got to the prison that day and I got searched and I got stuck in this room. And then they had to pull me out of the room. Then they put me back in the room. And after like five hours, they said, no, you can't do it. And I vigorously told them I was going to put them on front of the page of the Tribune the next morning because I had already cleared this and then they're like okay we'll let you do it and then on the way there I got on the way to go to the room where the woman I was interviewing was at I got lectured about things I could not ask about that's and interesting I, and I was like what can't ask about any of these things. you can't ask about anything in the facility or the facility whatsoever or her treatment the conditions nothing and I, I agreed to all of it and I'm like that's wonderful you realize you can't be in the room oh no I have to be I'm like no you can't be that's that's the agreement we have with the bosses that you want to go call the bosses let's go call the bosses and he backed down and the first thing as soon as he told me that the first thing I was going to ask about which really wasn't on my list was what what is it like being in here what don't yeah. they want you, you me to ask you about that they don't want you to tell me because that just set off all kinds of alarms um we are in the midst i will let you know we're in the midst of a foia battle with idoc we sent about 15 or 20 foias many months ago and i was going to say the big time the big heat of the pandemic what we're starting to swing back into it but uh last summer we sent in about 20 foias they denied a bunch of it they refused, the one big one that sticks out in my head that I think is really worrisome um, is they refused to tell us the aggregate number of people um, identified in each facility as gang members. And Let was, me guess, because it violated the safety and security of the institution. Right, which to me is the stupid, I'm sorry, that I think we're gonna, and I've got pro bono counsel already lined up. I'm like, wow, that's a winner. We'll beat that. No judge is gonna tell you can't add up a number. Right. right? No judge, you're not winning that in court. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me. I mean, it's no matter um, how much more 
data we get the department to make publicly available or that they share with us and we say, okay, we're gonna share this publicly. And we always let them know that we're gonna do it before we do that. Um, how difficult it is to sort of systemically move the needle and, and get these things to happen routinely. Um, you know, we continue to fight to get policies made publicly available. You know, when someone who's incarcerated has to write to the John Howard Association to find out about the policies and rules that govern the environment they live in, there's something really wrong. Yeah. Um, and so far, I think we've, they, they've agreed and they've put like four policies on their website. Uh, during COVID, one of the things we kept asking for was uh, we would see some of the new policies, but we would get we would get updates on the policies, but not the policies themselves. And we kept asking for very specific information, like when you say medical quarantine, what does that mean, right? And and we mean technically, what does that mean? How much out of cell time can somebody expect? How many phone calls a week? How many showers? Like what does that mean in a week for somebody's life? Right. And we, we, we never got that definitional information. And so, you know, month after month, when we would talk to them and ask for more information, and we would talk about medical isolation, medical quarantine, administrative quarantine, trying to understand the differences and trying to respond to the calls, letters and emails we get you know, saying I'm on this status, what does it mean? What am I entitled to? And not being able to answer those very basic questions and are asking number one, to get that information, number two, and more importantly, frankly, for that information to be made available, not just to the public, but to the people who are incarcerated so they have an understanding of what they can expect, you know, in terms of their day-to-day -day life. Um, it, it, it's not a huge leap that some of the information you're talking about would be hard to come by. Yeah, and, and my uh, accountability and probably not nuanced way of saying, when you have people writing you, the John Howard Association to ask what their status is in a facility and what they can or cannot do and cannot cannot expect, that is an epic, unprecedented, unbelievable failure of IDOC, facility by facility by facility, that that has to occur. Um, and, and certainly, you know, to be fair, during COVID, there were a lot of memos created and memos put on the institutional channels and, you know, a lot more information than is usual was being made available. Um, but there's, you know, I think this is sort of the constant and epic battle we find ourselves in with the Department of Corrections, you know, year after year, decade after decade is, you know, no matter how much more different or new information they make available, you know, we are constantly pushing for more. And there's no acknowledgement of, you know, I think it is very much their institutional sense that like you, we gave that to you or, look at our website, there's more information now than there's ever been. And that may be true, but more information now than there's ever been isn't the standard we're going for, right? We're looking for all the information that is relevant to how people are being treated and, and what they're experiencing and what's happening inside the system so that we as concerned citizens, as taxpayers know you know, this is a $1.3 billion a year agency. You know, this is, and these are frankly, more importantly, these are people's lives. These are human beings that are in the custody of the state. And we should know how they're living, how they're being treated, you know, what's happening inside those facilities. And we simply don't, you know, we aren't even close to having enough information about that. The bottom line is, and I, maybe I'll press the Lieutenant Governor as I know her, Every public agency should have it as their number one priority to be as transparent as possible. Their second priority should be make a public list available of every piece of data and every database where you collect data. And step three, put all that data online, except for certain items that you want to keep back for privacy or whatever. Then someone like you or someone like me, we can go to court and sue for those small items. But everything else is already opened. Um, the fact that you have to fight for basic stuff and them say, well, you know, in years past, we only had five things on, that were available, but now we're up to seven, even though uh, every year we had an extra hundred databases or whatever, just be happy with your seven is just frustrating. And it's a ridiculous way that we have to live, especially when you're talking about a facility that um, houses and supposed to care for human beings. Yeah. 
And I mean, I mean, the reality is, you know, transparency is an absolute principle. It's not a game of inches. And so unfortunately, we have to approach it as if it is, because that's the only way, you know, to get any sort of progress and move forward. But I think there's a fundamental uh, either disagreement or a fundamental, uh, I think fundamentally, we look differently at what it means to be transparent and provide data. And exactly to the points you just made, you know, we're not satisfied with improvement. We're not satisfied with more. We are looking for sight lines into a closed system so that we understand, you know, how people are behaving, how people are being treated. I mean, all of that should be publicly available information. Yeah, absolutely. And part yeah. of the problem is, is that, you know, to your earlier point, not enough people care that it, you know, those of us that, that really care about these issues um, care very deeply and, and fight very hard. Um, but for people who don't have an experience with incarceration, that don't know anybody who's been touched by the criminal justice system, you know, these are very theoretical issues. They're not something that a lot of people engage really deeply with and are willing to really advocate on behalf of or fight for. And I think that that, um, it not being an issue of large public concern um, is a problem. I, I, I do think that's changing. You know, I think the events of the last year and a half have helped fuel interest in these kinds of things and people understanding all the things we don't see, all the victimization that happens behind closed doors, whether it's in jails or prisons or at the hands of police. You know, I think there is a growing understanding that we should be able to see and know and hear how people um, who are in any kind of criminal justice custody are being treated. Yeah, and we'll, we're gonna have to leave it here, but I, I guess I'll make the last comment. Ladies and gentlemen, think about how the police at times have treated people on the street in full view of the public. Imagine what is happening with very similar people, right? As far as like, there's not a tremendous difference between a police officer and a correctional officer, but with no one there watching, right? Because no one, inherently, no one believes the inmates and everyone believes the guards. And there's 99% of the time, 99.9999% of the time, there are two types of witnesses in a, any kind of correctional facility, whether it's a jail or a prison. It's either an inmate or a correctional officer. So my, my 25 years of police accountability work shudders at what must be going on at those facilities. I just can't imagine. Um, and it's the same thing when I, I've heard so many people say, which just disgusts me over the last few years, look at all these things that are just now starting to happen, like the George Floyd death of Breonna Taylor and all these things. It's like, no, 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 no. The new thing is the phone. People have a camera in their pocket. That's new. It's not the incidents. They just didn't start doing this. Anyways, we could go on for hours. Jennifer, thank you so much for jumping on with us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, we are back. Thank you again to Jennifer Vollen Katz for joining us today from the John Howard Association for that incredible discussion. It's really, I mean, it shouldn't surprise me as a police accountability person. Wait a minute, they beat up this and murdered this gentleman in a blind spot that guards knew existed. Okay, who gets fired for that? Not that the beat him the death part, They're, they got one conviction, they're going after two more. That's not the part I'm, I mean, obviously concerned about it, but it's not the part I'm really talking about here. Those blind spots ha exist and have existed for quite a while. Who's responsible for that? Why aren't heads rolling at IDOC? Why aren't heads rolling in the administration? Why aren't heads rolling at these facilities? Does every, every facility have a blind spot? Fire the fire them, the uh, the warden whoever runs the facility. Fire all of them, if each one of their facilities has one. It's really pretty amazing. She is right. Jennifer is absolutely right. It is about transparency. That's how you build accountability is by having data and records public. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're going to be back in one minute after I provide you some information about our nation program. Go to cjpnation.org for more information. You will, um, then we'll come back and talk probably just one segment uh, about CWB, um, our social media fails segment for the week. Okay, I'll be back in one minute.
Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. Okay, we are back. So this next segment, social media fails, because there's always, honestly, between Alderperson Lopez and Paul Vallis and CWB Chicago, Second City Coplog is still posting at Chicago Contrarian. There's a never endless stream of content of what we could pick on. Here is one from CWB Chicago. For those people that are in our podcast audience, I will read it to you. So it's a quote retweet, basically, from CWB. The original um, tweet is from the Chicago Police Superintendent David O. Brown. Pay attention on August 23rd. We're going to drop a little research on Mr. O. Brown, 23rd, 24th, and 25th of... 24th, 25th, 26th, I think that's the date. We're going to drop some uh, research on Mr. Brown. But anyways, here's the tweet. Tonight, alongside Chicago Mayor, the Chicago First Lady, U.S. Attorney John Lausch Jr., and the hardworking and energetic officers, community, and faith leaders, and members of Chicago Caps 11 and Chicago Caps 06, we enjoyed National Night Out with our neighbors and communities. So that's Brown's tweet. CWB then, quote, retweets it, but then, or we retweets it, but adds comments saying, interesting, the top local federal prosecutor is there, but no mention of the state's attorney. CWB hates the state's attorney. Now, I think, I think we're, you're able to piece together that CWB is either, I think it's run by prosecutors. It definitely has the right alt-right tilt to it. It's definitely old school. Um, if they are prosecutors that run it or own it, it's definitely like Dick Devine, you know, ultra conservative prosecutors don't want to be questioned. Right. That's definitely what you're getting there. So let's start out national night out. It's total bogus. It's BS. It's a total BS event. We're going to get all our neighbors out one night and we're all going to come together one night a year out of the 365 nights. The other, the other 364 we couldn't care less about. Really? That one night out is going to make a difference? It isn't. As a word I got from someone on Twitter, I think Carl Nyberg on Twitter, it's copaganda. This is what this is. This is cop. Copaganda, like propaganda, but copaganda and political agenda, which means it's politicians and cops coming together to um, do some theater on a bullshit night out. This whole national night out. We're going to do it. This is really going to turn the corner for violence. One night going to turn the corner on Chicago's issues with violence? Does that make any sense? Of course not. CWB, CWB, though, totally bought into it. Why? Because they want anything they can possibly exploit to discredit Kim Fox, the state's attorney. Now, as a reminder, we're currently in litigation against the state's attorney. And while I agree with a lot of the stuff she does, her transparency, I do not agree with. That said, CWB is a political operation masquerading as media. It's basically the Fox News of Chicago. Although local Fox has been pretty much Fox Newsy recently too but they're they're trying to do fox news the print version in chicago they're so bad at it too so they don't understand the numbers they publish if they understood them better they would realize they don't prove what they think they prove they prove the exact opposite but that's for another time 
So CWB here with this tweet is ripping Fox for not being there. It's a total bullshit night out. And of all the nights out in all of the city and all of the county, why does she have to be at that one? And what does it make a difference if the prosecutor doesn't go to a national night out that's total bullshit? Why? Why do you care? Why do you buy into the propaganda that this is actually something? Lightfoot and Brown have lied repeatedly, 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 repeatedly about the effect of bail reform, the courts being closed, although they weren't actually closed for as long as they were talking about or as thoroughly as they were talking about. Bail reform, bail reform, bail reform. Lightfoot's deputy, uh, deputy mayor for public safety resigned over it, probably. We have emails saying, no, we got to stop saying this. This isn't the truth. The data doesn't reflect it. They don't care. They just keep lying. Why would Kim Fox go to a national night out with Mayor Lightfoot, who's done nothing but lie on the issue, and David, Superintendent David O'Brown, who's done nothing but lie on the issue? That's a key word. Remember that word, lie. I think it's August 24th. It is. It is. August 24th, we dropped the research on Brown. You're going to see he's got a little bit, little bit of a history with the honesty problems. It didn't come up during his confirmation, though. Did the police board know? Did the mayor know? Did they lie? Did they cover up? Or did they have no clue and they're completely clueless about his history? Let me get back to it. CWB, although hates the mayor and hates Brown, is doing nothing but being a megaphone for their propaganda. But they don't care because my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? As long as they're all ripping Fox for the problem, it's fine. It's all right that they, he, they hate them. It's all right that they hate them. It's totally fine. They don't care. They don't care. They just don't care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to leave it here. Remember, this is the last live show till the 16th, probably. And then I'll be in Chicago for a week after that. We're going to see what's going on with the live shows. But there will be, um, we're going to be running some of our uh, most popular shows on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 530, starting Friday all through next week, hopefully. And then I'll be back on the 16th and then we'll see how we go forward there for the next week or so. 10 days that I'll be in Chicago. Okay. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate it. Remember cjpnation.org if you got want to get involved. The day of action is coming up. Um, I will I will not talk to you Friday. I will talk to you in 11 or 12 days. The 16th, what is it? It is the 3rd today. It's right, it's the 4th. So I will talk to you on the 16th, 12 days. All right, I will see you on the 16th. We'll have our most popular shows up and running Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30, starting this Friday. And otherwise, stay safe and have um, a great part of your August. I will see you on the 16th.